This New America NYC event took place on March 21st, 2017, and is titled A Question of Order, The Return of Global Strongmen, and features Basharat Peer, Elmira Bayrosli, Manu Bhagavan, and Sherry Berman. I want to thank you all for coming to what I'm sure is going to be a fascinating discussion. So um, let's get started. We're here to discuss um, Bashar's new book, A Question of Order, um, India, Turkey, and the Return of Strongmen. So Bashar, let me ask you first to begin, if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book and why you chose to focus on India and Turkey. The book really came out of a conversation with my uh, teacher, you know, former teacher, Nicholas Lemon, uh, who was the dean of the journalism school. I was his student. You know, 11 years ago, uh, Nick was had just started the series Columbia Global Reports, a new imprint. He told me about it. Said, "Look, in these times, there's too much noise online. I want to do a series of short thematic books where we send out reporters and writers to different parts of the world and think about ideas and themes." And he's like, "So we're talking about India, and uh, Narendra Modi had just become the prime minister of the country." There was a lot of debate, a lot of talk around it. And as we talk about the Indian case and what was going in India, we found ourselves saying, but this is not just something particular to India. It's, it's a broader trend. It's happening elsewhere. And we, we talked about various, various other places where similar things were happening. You know, we looked at Chavez's Venezuela. We, we thought about certain aspects of the th polity in Thailand that are, that are smaller but significant countries like Sri Lanka under Rajapaksa was, you know, like a elected authoritarian politician with, with a terrible civil rights record. But then, as we talked about Turkey, one of the things I felt, and I, I began insisting that maybe given the space, you know, and, and this is part, this, this book is part of a series. These are around 40, 45,000 word books. So there's, there's also the economy of the scale. But Turkey was attractive in the sense that I, I saw there were larger parallels. I mean, the, the modern nation state of India comes out of the breakdown of the British Empire, the end of the British Empire. You know, a new nation state is born, but sadly, India and Pakistan are created, but they also come with terrible violence and displacement of populations. And what you have after that is a multi-ethnic, a very large multi-ethnic, multi-religious nation state, which has had one of the fault lines has always been the, the contestation between religion and politics. And you have also had serious uh, insurgencies and political trouble on the borders where an ethnic group is contesting the writ of the state or uh, an unfinished story from in, in the Indian case, Kashmir, where I grew up. And the echoes were very similar to Turkey. This is the Turkish Republic comes after, you know, the breakdown of the Ottoman Republic. It has multiple ethnicities and it's led by a very charismatic, uh, secularizing, you know, uh, leader, you know, Ataturk. Who, who, whose project of European modernity was like a, one of the major projects of social engineering when you come. You had a similar uh, figure in, in Jawaharlal Nehru, who's you know, Cambridge educated and influenced by Fabian's socialism. And he's also trying to create kind of a secular nation state on very religious soil. 
And then you have the Kurdish question in Turkey, and you have, like in India, we had the rise of religious parties like the BJP, the, which is the party of Narendra Modi, Bharatiya Janta Party. And similar to that, you had, I mean, they're not exact, but there is there are parallels where you had the rise of AKP uh, as uh, the Justice and Development Party, who do come from a tradition of religious politics. So I thought, you know, these are major countries located in different landscapes, you know, in, in South Asia is a world of its own. You know, once you live in the South Asian reality, you don't really think much about other places. It's so overwhelming. But Turkey, I thought, was interesting in the sense that it's in some ways connected both to Europe and to Middle East. And then going there, kind of, I realized that just going by this hunch where I, you know, I'd read a few books about Turkey, but I didn't really know that much. But I think we just went by instinct, and it was it was a good decision in the in hindsight. A couple of um, interesting points that maybe we could follow up on. So, you brought up some important similarities between India and Turkey. They're both post-colonial countries, although in somewhat different ways. They both had modernizing, westernizing leaders originally, and they're both riven by important communal cleavages. So, I wondered if you could follow up and tell us a little bit more about perhaps what you see as some of the causes of the contemporary what you call strongmen. Other people might refer to these as kind of hybrid regimes or illiberal democracies or electoral autocracy. So if you could tell us a little bit more about what you see as some of the causes of this kind of political development. And also perhaps if you could um, describe for the audience, um, which perhaps is not as fortunate to be immersed in this literature, what the particular characteristics of these regimes are that are important and that differentiate them from other types of political regimes. So what makes these regimes sort of distinctive, similar, and what some more of the causes of this kind of um, political development might be? Um, if, we, if we look at the causes, there's, there's always like, you know, n n ideas of a nation that, that, you know, the story that each country tells, that there are the foundational ideas. And there are countries in which they are unanimously accepted. But I think India and Turkey were both two major countries where the kind of the foundational civic religion, in, in, in a way, if one can say that, you know, the, the, the idea two secularisms, which are both very different, you know, because the Turkish secularism is a derivative of the French version, and, and the Indian notion of secularism is closer to the American notion, kind of a, a, an idea of meant, the state maintains an equal distance from all, you know, communi religious communities. Whether that happens in practice or not, is, that's a secondary question, but that's the intent. But it's not, in the Indian case, it's not, it's not an antagonist relationship with religion itself, while in the Turkish case that was there. So I think partly it was also, these contestations continued. There were, there were major groups, you know, the, the Hindu nationalist movement in India did not accept the, the, the dominant narrative of the Nehruvian secularism, although it was kind of simmering beneath the surface in a minority, you know, for the longest time, two people in the in a, in a parliament of 500 people, and similarly in the in the in the Turkish world, you know, the the Kamalist world was the dominant world, and the the Islamists were, you know, not a force to reckon with for a, for the longest time in the Repu republic. I mean, only. You know, you know when when Najmuddin Arbakan comes to you know 
prominence. I mean, he was the kind of more, one of the more famous figures. And, and in the 80s, and also sort of, you know, the, the Turkish story is so complex. I mean, they're also in NATO, there's the fear of Russia, the whole Cold War plays a part of it. And after the Iranian revolution, I, I thought that is when, you know, the Turkish state had to kind of slowly create an opening for, for, for religion in the public sphere. And you saw that in the 80s, that's when the kind of Islamist politics started to grow and, and gain strength in Turkey till it finally comes to power in, in 2002 or three. So if I, if I may interrupt for a second. So contested national identity is an important um, feature joining these two countries and one that you think yes. makes them susceptible to a certain type of politics and also an initial attempt to tamp down on kind of religious identity as a critical component of I, I do, the new nation? I do agree that's, that's a critical component, but there could be cases, you know, uh, because I have been thinking more about these two particular cases, but there could be, there could be other states where you don't necessarily have contested national identities. The, the two major political figures we're talking about here, Narendra Modi in India or Rajab Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, do come out of these contested uh, you know, national uh, discourses. And then it's also a question of timing when they emerge in their respective political spheres. Uh, when Erdogan gains power at a time, you know, 90s in Turkey are described as the lost decade, major economic crisis, the war with the Kurds, the, you know, the country is going through a very difficult phase. And this is this new party with a religious baggage, which not a lot of people are comfortable with, but they are effective doers in, in municipal uh, governance, where they show, as, as, as mayor of Istanbul, he showed himself as an effective politician. And because there is great disillusionment with the old elite, or the old institutions are shaky and crumbling, that creates the opening for a forceful outside challenger. And similarly, that happened in India too. Okay, so we have some long-term causes here in this sort of contested national identity and in the decline of the original sort of establishment, right? It's not meeting challenges, it's not satisfying all citizens, right? And then we have shorter-term causes in the form of economic crisis, war, international events, the Iranian revolution, things like that. Okay, so actually I fell down on the job as my, um, as moderator and forgot to introduce the other panelists. And I'm gonna to turn to them now maybe just for a moment to ask them to fill us in a little bit on um, the Indian and the Turkish case to see if they have some comments on these conditions, either the long-term roots of contemporary and the long versus short-term roots of contemporary political developments or what you think of um, um, Bashar, it's kind of very quick summary of um, what he thinks the critical causes are, what's going on. And you can uh, introduce yourself as well, since I forgot to do so. Um, we'll start at the end. Um, good evening. Um, my name is Manu Bhagavan. I'm a professor at Hunter College in the Graduate Center. Uh, thank you, Sherry and Basharath uh, and Elmira, um, and Basharath for writing this um, really timely and important book. Um, so uh, I'm a I'm a sorry a specialist on 20th century India and human rights. Um, well. Uh, if, if I can just preface my comments with one thing uh, for all of you. Um, this is really a remarkable book, and it is particularly remarkable because what it, I think it does is um, 
it puts the consequences of authoritarian regimes into very personal narratives and uh, allows us as readers to connect to the really, to, to the very serious emotional distress uh, that um, I, I think many people around the world are now feeling, but particularly those uh, under the boot of these regimes. So um, just to commend you on that, thank you. Um, right, I, in the Indian case, I think I largely agree with uh, everything that Bashar had said. Uh, there are uh, long-term uh, long causes uh, that have brought us to this point. Um, uh, religious nationalism in some ways can date back to the 19th century. Uh, Hindu nationalism uh, sort of really takes off and, and assumes some of its modern garb, uh, if you can use that term for something like religious nationalism, um, in, in the 1920s. Um, uh, there's contestation between religious nationalists and the mainstream form of Indian nationalism, which is led by Gandhi and Nehru. Uh, it is a, a Hindu nationalist that kills Gandhi. Uh, they largely oppose Nehru, but Nehru is too big of a figure, uh, and they, 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 they can't challenge him directly. Also, they're banned uh, uh, outright because of their actions against Gandhi. So they, uh, they fall into the shadows somewhat initially. Uh, some of them were actually absorbed into the Indian National Congress itself uh, and operate from within Nehru's party. Um, so there's some of these complicating factors. Uh, and then essentially what happens, if I just boil it down into a quick nugget, in, in the 70s, uh, Nehru dies, his sister takes, I'm sorry, his daughter takes over, um, uh, Indira Gandhi. Uh, uh, Indira Gandhi, um, largely becomes concerned, uh, sort of paranoid uh, about um, people trying to bring her down with somewhat good reasons. Uh, she, large, she then sort of becomes uh, indebted to smaller and smaller circles of people and becomes more autocratic herself. Uh, as a result, the entire opposition, right to left, uh, aligns against her. Uh, she's eventually, uh, she, she had declares an emergency, she loses an election that follows, and the opposition, which includes the Hindu right, uh, now comes to power, and that sort of is their initial pathway back to legitimacy. Um, uh, Mr. Modi, the key figure of, of the story uh, in India right now, the Prime Minister, um, eventually becomes the Chief Minister of the State of Gujarat, uh, where uh, in 2002 there is a, a large-scale violence uh, against the Muslim population of the state that human rights organizations repeatedly concluded uh, was uh, the state of the, the hand of the state was involved, uh, and and this uh, uh, brought many people to uh, claim, to argue, and to charge that Mr. Modi himself bore part of the responsibility, or maybe more. Uh, for the events in the state. He's never accepted responsibility, as the book discusses. Uh, after the events, uh, he then assumed the mantle of a development authority. That's what he stood for. Uh, he ran for prime minister on those grounds. Uh, he won on those grounds. And for the first two years, also as documented in the book, he sort of has been silent on, on everything else and any other criticism. And where he speaks is largely about the development agenda. All of that, that entire mask, the veneer, I think we can safely say, as of today, uh, is, is completely removed uh, because he's just won the state elections in UP, the largest state in India, 
and uh, they have appointed as the chief minister uh, the most obvious, transparent, right-wing religious zealot uh, who is um, charged with outright murder uh, as the chief minister. So that's where things stand. Is that, in a nutshell, uh, a quick, a quick run-through? This is what happens when you get a historian or an academic on a stage. I apologize. Great. Hi, everyone. My name is Elmira Bayrasli, and I am a fellow here at New America. I am also a professor at Bard College, Bard's Globalization International Affairs Program. And I am, more, most importantly, I am the co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted. Um, I second Manu's um, accolades of Bashir's book. Um, it's a really terrific read, and I think it's very, it is very timely. Um, my particular area of focus is Turkey, which is why I'm here. Um, I think just in terms of what, what Bashir was talking about before um, and, and the rise of Erdogan and how we see, how we see him today. Um, er Erdogan has been in power since 2003. Um, the AKP first were, they were elected in 2002. Um, Erdogan didn't become prime minister in 2003. I think what's interesting to note about Erdogan's ascendancy is though he is today, I think, unquestionably an autocrat. Um, he definitely embraces populist um, messages. When he first came to power, however, he was very much a progressive. Um, he, he was the mayor of Istanbul in the, in the late 1990s, and, um, and I can tell you as the daughter of Turkish immigrants who's traveled to Turkey um, since the 1970s, um, he cleaned up Istanbul. Um, he made sure that the electricity stayed on, the water could be drank, the, the tr public transportation would run. He cleaned up the garbage. Um, Istanbul used to be just strewn with garbage, and Erdogan cleaned that up when he was mayor. He took a, a city budget that was in the red, and he put it in the black. He was a technocrat, and this is essentially what the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, was. Um, so they were a little different from Erbakan in the sense that Erbakan was a very much, he was very an Islamist. No, 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 I mean, the, yeah, I mean, Golan, you know, we... I didn't go into the details, but of course. Um, but he was the grand. He was the. He was the grandfather. He was, and, and the kids and, separated from him. And, and, and they did separate from him because I think Erdogan is. I think after Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who is the founder of modern state Turkey, um, Erdogan is arguably the most shrewd politician that the Turks have seen. He is incredibly bright. Um, he is a masterful tactician. Um, he campaigned in essentially in 2002 on an inclusive progressive message, which was we will fight for the black Turks, which he identified himself with, um, essentially the Turks that had, had been left behind by the secular elite, which Bashar points out in his book very, very eloquently. Um, and, you know, saying that we will bring you into the fold. And I think a number of things were in Erdogan's favor. I think the time that Erdogan came into power, you had globalization and you had the spread of technology. And so he was riding on this wave where you had a lot of emerging markets really taking advantage of those two things. And so combined with 
Erdogan's ability to be a technocrat and actually deliver services to people. I mean, the reality is people vote with their pocketbooks and, and they vote for people who are actually going to deliver services for them. And the reality is the AKP was the only political party in Turkey that was picking up people's trash, that was improving public transportation, that was focused on health care, and that was focused on education. Um, and so, deservedly so, they they have they they did win, and they rose to power. I think where you start to see a turn with Erdogan and his turn to be the autocrat that he is today is a result of of a number of different things. One, he never really focused on strengthening Turkish institutions, which were inherently weak. And so out of the Ottoman Empire, Ataturk created the Turkish Republic and was so focused on creating that republic that it became a top-down hierarchy. And institutions were weak. And so it was whatever the strong man, and Ataturk was a strong man, said went. Um, and though Erdogan promised to represent, and I had a meeting with Erdogan shortly after he became prime minister in 2003, and we talked about, because when he campaigned, he talked about the Kurds and how we need to reach out to the Kurds and the Alevis, who are another minority in Turkey and represent Alevi rights. Um, and Erdogan said to me, and we talked about that, and I said, I think your campaign message was very unique in Turkey because you would never have a secular, a secular Turkish politician talking about reaching out to the, the you know the mountain turks you know you couldn't even say the word kurd when i was a child um, and he said to me his response was very telling and he said to me there are 72 million people in this country and i represent each and every one that is a profoundly different statement from what he talks about today um, and why he's talking about that was instead of actually focusing in on turning the institutions and strengthening them for those 72 million people, he focused on maintaining his power. The weak opposition in, in Turkey, the secular opposition, is a complete disaster in Turkey. Um, and so he was able to garner more power um, and, you know, and, and frankly, you know, Turkey's economy started going well, and again, people vote with their pocketbooks, and they're going to keep Erdogan in power, and that's what he has become focused on. His focus has gone from delivering services and representing the 72 million people in Turkey to actually holding on to power. And when you have weak systems, inevitably, you have the rise of populism. No, I, I agree with her. I mean, the, the first 10 years of... Uh, you know, I mean, because when I, when I, before I went to Turkey, and, and it's a critique of my own tribe, a lot of what I had been reading in the last four to five years about Turkey, I mean, I went there thinking this man is a lunatic, to be honest, because that's all you get in, in most of the Western press. You just thought, like, this guy is crazy. He's only, like, beating up people or throwing them into jail. The, I mean, unless you read, like, real scholars or scholarly literature, uh, you know, and and it's it's really I mean it's 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 an unusual view. There are not many you know Turks who are even willing to say what Almira just said. Because oh, as, I know. As, as an outsider, I mean, I could afford to say because you know I'm not from the Kemalist elite. I'm just some you know journalist who came. So even to hear someone describe 
what AKP was like this is impossible in Istanbul today because the polarization is so deep. Sadly, I mean, in some, in some ways, looking at Erdogan is, you just compare him to the man he was and there's a sense of disappointment. It's like, you got so many things right, if only you didn't let power go to your head. I mean. Um, okay, so let me follow up a little bit on some of these um, excellent points. So you both, um, Manu and Elmira, you both brought up the point that um, these regimes or these strongmen were able to come to power largely because of the sort of failures of their predecessors, right? They come to power as sort of developmentalists, as modernizers, because the previous regimes had been unable to fulfill their promises to all of their citizens. And so they're able to come to power promising people that they will do what the previous regimes had not been able to do, and in particular to mobilize those who felt um, left out or left behind by the previous regimes. And as you both also mentioned, one of the great things about Bashar's book is it spends most of its time talking about actual people in these societies and how they experience these regimes and why they support or not support them. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about um, what precisely the appeal is, right? You've both touched on it, but maybe we could systematize it a little bit more. It's developmentalist, it's modern, it's modernizing, it's representing the people through the person of these strong leaders, but it's a particular version of the people. It's no longer all the people, but it's some of them. It's the ones who felt left behind. This is very similar to, I know Bashar, you don't like this term. I'm a Europeanist. I study populism in Europe. This is, of course, a very strong characteristic or tendency of what social scientists call populist parties. It was a very strong part of our current president's appeal, of course, that he was going to bring back into the system those who had been left behind, who had been ignored by liberal cosmopolitan elites. And so this clearly is a very powerful message that can resonate across many societies and contexts. So maybe we could talk I have a, a, I have a question before yeah. we talk about the present. I, mm -hmm. you know, as you are a historian of ideas and you have looked at Europe, and, and you saw the 30s and you saw the populist parties in, and you've written a great length about Would you tell us some, a little more about that? Like when you, as a historian, see it, are these characters radically different or are the appeals very different from uh, the Europe you studied and when you saw the rise of populist parties? Well, um, I think we probably want to talk more about the contemporary, but I would say that um, just as Elmira said some unfashionable things or some unusual things about Turkey, I think it would be very important if we think back to the sort of classic cases of sort of fascism and national socialism in the 30s to remember that these parties were incredibly popular and their popularity came precisely from promising to solve problems that existing parties and democratic institutions were not. They promised to um, provide welfare for citizens, a sense of identity and a sense of belonging, and to strengthen these countries against their um, oppressors. Those oppressors were somewhat different in the 1930s, but there's always enemies both outside and inside that you can mobilize people against. So I think there are some sort of common trends that we see in kind of strongmen or populist parties or these kinds of things. Um, Contexts vary, but certain kinds of political dynamics, um, I think, transcend um, time and space. And, and, and again, I think for many people in interwar Europe, fascists and national socialists were incredibly attractive um, because they did precisely promise to provide what other 
parties in existing democracies were not. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about how that manifests themselves in um, you know, contemporary India and Turkey. Yeah. Well, in Turkey, I, I mean, I think it's interesting because when you see the rise of populism in Turkey um, with Erdogan, it really comes at a point where Turkey has essentially made it. And so the message that Erdogan is elected on is one on, prog on a very progressive message. And so it's not one on, you know, we, look, we see Donald Trump and he's appealing to people who have lost manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, and it's people who feel essentially like they're losing. Um, Erdogan wins on a progressive message, and he says, I'm going to take everyone in this country and I'm going to have them win. Where he becomes a populist, it becomes at a point where you're at the, you're kind of at the apex of Turkish confidence and Turkish national identity. You know, I remember as a child, we used to fill our suitcases up with Levi's jeans and bubblegum, um, you know, Michael Jackson albums and all these things that you could not get in Turkey um, because of it was a socialist economy. And now I literally go with an empty suitcase because I want to bring back Mavi jeans and all the great Turkish, you know, scarves and fashions. And Turks are proud of this. They're proud of the fact that they have an entrepreneurial class now, that they have a world-class city in Istanbul. Um, it's a world-class European destination. And there is this sense of, you know, we don't need the European Union, and we don't need the West. And where you see Erdogan start to switch is essentially when he walks off the stage in Davos, when he's on the stage with Shimon Peres, and he gets applause, not only from Turks, but everyone in the Middle East, because he's just like, we're not, we have made it. We will not take your crap anymore. And this is, this message starts to resonate, and it does not come from losing. The populism that you see growing in Turkey comes from the fact that Turks are winning. Right, so at that point, in some ways, here, if we look at how the transformation happened in, in kind of looking at Erdogan or his, the, the representation of Turkey in the press. So after the great success, 10 years, you know, every major journal, newspaper, you only have had like, and the fact is they were doing so well. I mean, so, so everything was written as like, look, the Turkish model is something all of Middle East should look at. And this is an example that has really worked out very well. And then, but I think at what she said, it is the sense of, so the sense of, and, and Turkish nationalism is really fierce. They have more flags than anywhere in the world. <laughs> I once went to a sweet shop. They even had flags on the baklava. I mean, really. Uh, Americans, you know, have a lot of flags, but you can't be Turkey on that. Uh, it's an intense, it's an intense force, really. You, I'll you, hide you, mine when you come over to, to my uh, apartment. So, so this is how it goes there. And, and at that point, I think one of the things was, as she said, uh, it, the, the Turkish story was a victim of its own success. At that point, Erdogan was, no, because he, he had been so successful. And you praise a man for 10 years, and everyone in the world is saying wonderful things about him. It, 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 it's, it's just the question, something switched. And where the first, he, would, he stopped listening to his, the old classic liberals who had come out, you know, Orhan Pamuk, Nilafur Gule, all, all the major intellectuals supported him, and suddenly, he was not caring about them. He went out on a limb, I mean, you know, more than any Turkish leader to, to come to an agreement with uh, the Kurds. 
you know, Ojalan, the head of the PKK, had been arrested. He was in a, a you know, imprisoned on an island. He's, the peace process was started. There were other factions within the Turkish polity who were not happy with that. But he pushed that. But there was also this, at the same time, with his success, it came to this point that, you know, that I embody the national will. Right. The, the, the phrase national will is, is, a, is a very important phrase in, in the Turkish context. In, and, you know, it, it just seemed to Erdogan, seemed that, you know, at that point, he just thought, what I build this city, you know, there's, there's a friend, of, uh, a brilliant writer who lives in Turkey, an American writer called Susie Hansen. And in one of their, in one of her essays, she talks to one of, uh, a supporter of Erdogan, and, and he says, look who bought the tulips, Tayyip did. It was like, even he even bought the tulips to Istanbul. It, 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 it's, it's that kind of, so it, it did go to his head and, and suddenly all the dissenters or liberals even with the party, he edged out of the Lagol, he moved into the presidency, into the presidency he, and, and he also took care, was establishing his power over all other institutions, whether it's judiciary, which was, which was not fairly representative of all Turks. It's true, it was, it, was, it was dominated largely by the old elite, but he did, in the name of, you know, saying that we need people from everywhere on the Supreme Court in the higher judiciary, he did court backing and he changed things. And slowly over the years, the man was establishing complete authority over all institutions. And he did defeat the military, he did took down the judiciary, and then the big fight came with the Gulenists. And essentially at this, and he's still going on about the same story. Now this, this the, the, the referendum, the post-coup purges, it's all about, I want to be the president till 2029 and to have complete power, let me reshape. I mean, the man in some ways thinks himself as someone who will reshape Turkey even more than Atatürk did. You know, on, on that note, I'm struck by how similar well, the resonance is with Narendra Modi. So I think Modi in many ways would like to be, or, or, or wishes, uh, that uh, this reputation that Erdogan had was his. And it, perhaps it might have been safe for 2002, which haunted him all the way through. Now, when I say safe, when, just, just, to, just to clarify, not that he achieved those things, but he could never escape the, the, stain. the stain of 2002, exactly. So no matter what he did, uh, no matter what he developed, no matter what, he, what big project he would launch or what new phrase he would release, uh, uh, he, he never received uh, unequivocal praise because there were always people dogging him saying, you know, actually, um, you've got these problems. Um, so on the other hand, the good... He, uh, Mr. Modi was the chief minister of the West Indian state of Gujarat before he became the prime minister. And uh, as chief minister, he uh, achieved quite a bit of fame for what he accomplished in the state in terms of development. Uh, and uh, so much so that the state became like the, the, the model for the rest of the country, the Gujarat model, which everyone wanted to emulate. There's some problems here, which have some striking parallels to Mr. Trump and some of, the some of what we're seeing in our situation here, um, which is, ac according to a number of um, experts, a much maligned term these days, uh, the, the numbers of Gujarat may have been fudged quite a bit. Um, so how great the project was is up for debate. Uh, 
uh, without a doubt, there were transformative effects, which anyone who goes through the state can see, particularly in the urban centers of places like Ahmedabad. Uh, but in terms of upliftment out of poverty and, and numbers like this, it, it, the data is much more uh, uh, questionable. Uh, so, so just just to, to wrap up this uh, point, um, uh, Modi stuck to this grand narrative. That's what he wanted. This this narrative of success of development. Um, but you know, you you he can't get away. And, and this this other part of him was who he always was. So I'm wondering if Erdogan was was there ever the secret side of him too. <laughs> I mean, was he really a progressive? I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm amazed by that. That's someone who's, who I says... I think there are two answers to that, yeah. but I'll let you start. No, 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 I want you to... Uh, you met him... Oh, you want me to be the punching bag. <laughs> I haven't met him. I only met some of his people. So this is a very um, controversial question in Turkey. Um, the secular elite will say that, you know, he, I always get the, you know, I told you so. I told you, you know, I told you what Erdogan was. Um, my response to that is, you told me nothing. Um, you told me that Erdogan was going to turn Turkey into an Islamic state. He did not do that. Um, you said that he was going to implement Sharia law, and he he did not do that. Um, Erdogan is a very pious Muslim, um, but I think that when he first came to power, I think to answer your question, Manu, I think he really did believe that he was going to transform Turkey, and I really do. I mean, I honestly. I think he really entered politics with this sense that I am going to represent the 72 million people in this country. And I'm, I'm finally going to actually do something for this country that I believe in. Um, and it's interesting when you take a look at Erdogan and um, his now his nemesis, Fethullah Gulen, um, who is this preacher who actually is now living in Pennsylvania, and they were once very close allies. Um, you know, one of the comparisons I've heard people make is, you know, people were worried about this alliance between Gulen and Erdogan, which um, Bashar would be, he, he, you talk about in your book. Um, and I, and I, and I've heard people say that, you know, the problem with Gulen is that he's a Muslim first and a Turk second, but Erdogan is a Turk first. Um, and this is where you get that national strain of, of Erdogan. I think he did turn. I think a number of things made him turn. I think it was a weak, weak state in Turkey. I think it was a weak opposition that he went unopposed. Um, you know, and it just became, you know, I'm in power, so I'm just going to go with this. Um, I don't think he started out that way, though. And I know, I, I know that when I open up my Twitter, I'm going to get hate mail and, and death threats because um, a lot of people would disagree with me. That's my point of view. I think, I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a legitimate description of that. I mean, this is, you would always hear that, the sense of, you know, uh, look, we, we always knew how could, how could, he couldn't be anything but this. Uh, but I think there's, if, I mean, when you look at Erdogan today, it's, uh, he does use Muslim nationalism every now and then. You know, when, in one of his victories when he talked about, you know, this is not just a victory for Turkey, but also for, you know, Sarajevo, for Gaza. For... So there was that moment also after the Arab Spring when, you know, the success, both the economic and the political success had been immense. And 
it did happen, you know, and, and power is a strange thing. I mean, he just, he told, everyone was talking about that now the Arab Spring is happening and all the Arab countries should look at Turkey. And Erdogan started, you know, that's what it seems from all accounts that he, he started thinking that, yes, I am the leader. I am the one who will lead all these places. I mean, he was, he was talking to the Egyptians and he was talking to the Syrians and he was talking to all of the Arabs thinking and assuming this mantle of, you know, what it, everyone like teases him saying, oh, he was trying to be the Khalifa. But, but there was a bit of that. And, and it, you, you could just see that. I mean, even when he talks today, like I was, I was in Turkey a couple of months back, you know, Bangladesh is really far away from Turkey. What happens in local Bangladeshi politics? I mean, only like South Asians and very few South Asians care. And there's been a big debate over, you know, history in Bangladesh and about complice, whether some Islamists were complicit in the genocide in 1971. And one of the f main figures in the Jamaat Islami in Bangladesh and Islamist party who was accused by this war crime tribunal of being complicit in the genocide, he was hanged to death in Bangladesh. And I'm in Turkey watching TV in Istanbul and suddenly, Taip Erdogan is recalling his ambassador from Bangladesh. And I was like, why is Erdogan recalling his ambassador from Bangladesh? Because a Bangladeshi politician who's an Islamist has been you know, sentenced to death by their own courts because of their own history. And that's when you realize, no, that strain had become it was important. And then you see when, when the Rohingya genocide is going on in Myanmar, that you know, Erdogan's wife went there and she wept and it was broadcast on national, on Teretim, which is the national television. It was everywhere, you know, Armenian holding hands of, you know, and you know, terrible things were done to Rohingyas. There's of course no doubt about that. But the very act of her going there. So, I mean, apart from how we see Turkey in its relationship you know, to bigger Western powers. Turkey has these important relationships all across the world. In Somalia, we have a famine raging on, but, and, and all the troubles there, you know, Turkish doctors, there have been hundreds of Turkish doctors who have been there working. So there is this soft power he has been using, and it is attached to increasing his influence throughout the Muslim world. And it's something that is actually quite serious. It's not just positioning. and then we'll open it up so um, you guys can ask our great panelists um, some questions. So let me end then um, this part of the discussion by asking you a little bit um, about the future. So as a political scientist, um, most people um, who look at Turkey today don't actually consider it very democratic anymore. Even though there's still elections, the other qualities of democracy have sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, most people still consider India to be a fairly decent democracy. Um, Indian institutions being longer lived and stronger than their Turkish ones. And even though um, Modi's main opposition, the Congress party, is kind of a shell of its former, former self, there are other parties in India. And India's diversity itself is seen as a kind of strength blocking Modi from centralizing power the way Erdogan has in Turkey. So let me end by asking you, what you, the experts, actually think um, the short to medium term future will hold. Do you expect um, trends in India to push more in the sort of um, authoritarian direction? Or do you expect India's democracy to be able to kind of hold its own? And do you expect 
Erdogan's megalomania to increase. He'll win, presumably, the referendum that's coming up, and maybe not. Um, and will what, what do you suspect actually Turkey's short to medium term future holds? And then Bashar, maybe you can tell us something comparatively about what you expect um, going forward. Um, gosh. Uh, I know historians hate this kind of question. Right. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I'd say the, the short term, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, Modi has just won uh, the big state elections in, in, U, in UP, although the Congress party did win in, in, uh, in Punjab. Uh, but, but basically, I think it's safe to say that uh, Modi looks uh, to be without a serious challenger leading into the next uh, national elections. Uh, he looks to, at least as of this moment today, uh, to win uh, soundly and, and will have 10 years total of his leadership at a minimum. Uh, what does this mean for democracy in the, in the short to long term? Well, one thing we can say about India is at least up until this point, the judiciary has held its own. And, and that has had some remarkable and important pushbacks and verdict. You cite one, uh, Bashar, towards the end of the book. Uh, there's a, like a, the, like a Securities Act, uh, which allows the Indian military to um, act basically without impunity in contested areas. And the Supreme Court uh, just recently said, actually, you know what, you can't do that. Um, there, there are limits uh, in the way a military can act. And, and this, is, this is a very serious check on their power. Um, so uh, the judiciary, I think, uh, is an institution that has held, that is holding, and at least let me put it this way, I hope uh, it continues to hold. Um, uh, the future of democracy in India depends on it. I, I think we can actually say fairly clearly what success means now. I think uh, a few weeks ago, if you'd asked me that, I, I, I might have still hedged. I might have said, well, you know, I, I think he has a Hindu right agenda. He wants, to, he wants to keep his supporters happy. He's sort of balancing the RSS, that's the, the, the mother organization, uh, with uh, all these other needs. Um, if you look, he sort of speaks one way domestically, and, but he understands that there's an international pressure. Also, he speaks differently on an international stage. Well, the international stage right now is grim. I don't think that he has the pressure to speak that way that he used to, two. And three, uh, uh, this UP election, uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, the largest, most populous Indian state, uh, the chief minister of this state, as I've already indicated, um, is a very clear right-wing ideologue. Uh, and so I, I think it's safe to say that success actually does mean what we might say is the worst case scenario, a, a Hinduized India that is not secular uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, in Turkey, so um, Sherry, you brought up on April 16th, um, uh, Turks will go to the polls and decide on a referendum voting yes or no on whether to change the Turkish constitution which was adopted, which was actually implemented by the Turkish military in 1980. Um, it is a constitution that is in dire need of reform. 
um, particularly on civil on points of civil liberties. Um, but the point that Turks will be going to the polls on on April 16th will be to vote whether to change Turkey's government structures from a parliamentary one to a presidential one, which essentially would move um, the powers from the par Turkish parliament to the presidential one, executive one, in which um, today President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is the president and would give him unchecked powers. Um, I'm not, I, I'm hesitant to ever doubt Erdogan because Erdogan is ultimately a winner. Um, I have to say though, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the vote came out no. Um, I think that there are a lot of indications that I think primarily because again, regardless of who you are in Turkey, you do vote with your pocketbook. And the Turkish economy has been sliding and people have been feeling the squeeze on that. And I think that at least when I have traveled around in central Anatolia, um, I had gone to Ka I had gone to Kayseri, which is an AKP um, AKP Justice and Development Party um, stronghold, and essentially you could see it as the headquarters for for the Erdogan party. And I sat in a park. Um, this was right after the Gezi protests in 2013. And so when everybody was in in Istanbul in in Gezi Park, I decided to get on an airplane and go into the center center of the country to see what was going on. And I sat in a park and I talked to a number of women who I said, how do you, how are you seeing these protests in Istanbul and Ankara? And, you know, this one woman was talking about how Erdogan responded in the right way, you know, we have to abide by our leader and so on and so forth. And this another woman who, who was clearly an AKP voter, she was wearing a headscarf and she turned around and she said, what has Erdogan done for me? You know, my life is not any better. Life is getting harder. And I immediately turned to her and I said, oh, I said, you know, and she, I said, you know, would you vote for Erdogan in the next election? She said, yes, I would, because I don't believe that the opposition represents my point of view. But I think that within the country, I think that the AKP is vulnerable. And we did see that in the June 2015 elections. Um, when the AKP lost its majority and there was a hung parliament and then the elections had to be held again in November of 2015, the AKP is vulnerable. Um, its supporters are angry and so I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure, but I think in the longer term, I, I unfortunately think that Turkey's future is very bleak. Um, I think that because opposition is so weak in Turkey and um, I think because Erdogan is such a shrewd politician, I think even if the referendum comes out as a no, I think you're going to see a lot of chaos, particularly violence within the country. I think you're going to see an outbreak of civil war with the Kurds um, and I think you're going to see a, lo a, lot of, a, a lot of ugly things coming out in Turkey in, in the next six months. No, Sanki, uh, I agree with her. I mean, especially with the you know, Kurdish question. It's not just the, you know, that the fact that the, the main Turkish opposition party, People's Republican Party or CHP is weak, but also that Erdogan through terrible use of coercion and force has destroyed the Turkish, uh, the main Kurdish party. You know, Salahuddin Demirtas, the leader of the HDP and various other parliamentarians. First their immunity in the parliament was removed, then they were all thrown into prison and what has been going on in the southeastern uh, region in Turkey, where mostly the Kurdish people live. I mean, the last two years, uh, 
have largely been a unrepentant, pitiless counterinsurgency campaign. I mean, you know, it was not that, you know, you were just arresting or having a gun battle with some Kurdish militants. No, there were, there were towns and neighborhoods, you know, which I visited and, you know, reported from. I mean, there was like town after town was raised to dust. It was Grozny style kind of uh, counterinsurgency. It wasn't, uh, you know, Erdogan's uh, wrath was just, you could just see it there. I mean, you know, you, you see the dark side, not in Istanbul, but when you go to a Kurdish town, and that's when you see it. I mean, there were, the, the, you know, there were houses where you could just see the, the metal casings of the RPGs used or the tanks were used. I mean, there was nothing left. There was rubble for miles. And, uh, you know, torture, arrest, detention. And, and that, again, continued after the coup, when he didn't just stop with so-called, you know, every, you know, see this, the, the, the Gulen story also, if you even like shared like internet in a cafe where some Gulen guy had used his internet, you could be in jail. Or there was this tens of thousands who had bank accounts with this bank called Bank Asia, which was owned by the Gulen people. It's like, you know, what if Trump has a problem with the guys who own Chase Bank and I just happen to have an account there? So then I go to Drikers. I mean, that's what's been going on there for the last six months. And apart from going after you know, random people who had accounts there, he restarted his war on the Kurds. So thousands of academics who had just, you know, we get emails every other day. Somebody says, oh, this petition for this. You know, you just sign. It's, it doesn't take much. You click yes on email. Several thousand academics signed a petition saying, look, these military operations, the violence in the Kurdish areas should stop. And after the coup, and some of them were arrested before the coup and kept in prison. But after the coup, like tens of thousands of them have lost their jobs. And, and the, the press is completely decimated. You know, there's, there's very few things left. And it's not that, you know, the, 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 the Kurdish question was insurmountable. I mean, you know, I think you know that's that's something the Turks can solve by by sitting down with the Kurds and like sorting it out. There's no you know the it it was very much in the realm of the possible, uh, but uh, his his campaign has been ruthless, and I, I was just there last week and just talking to several Kurdish friends, checking what's going on. Uh, everyone is worried, like across the political spectrum, that whether he wins or loses, people are scared. Let me thank the wonderful panelists and um, all. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>